Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. If you've got 90 minutes, just put them aside right now and stay tuned to this station you're listening to because Prophecy Today is on the air. I'm up here in Connecticut, Windsor, Connecticut. We're going to be at the Grace Baptist Church in Windsor tonight, starting at 6 o'clock, a couple of sessions. And then tomorrow, quite interesting schedule. We start early in the morning, and then we take a break, have lunch, and we come back for an afternoon session. They tell me there's a football game going on someplace in this world, and everybody might want to look at it. So we're going to conform to what is happening in our world. We'll have the evening service in the afternoon. Afternoon. Hope you can join us. You listen to the Blount Broadcasting Company in this region of the world. You know that we're here, and we'd love to have you come. Again, that's Grace Baptist Church, Windsor, Connecticut. Come along and join us. Uh, Jason Stevens and all of his fine people will start tonight at 6, all day tomorrow, up until around 4 o'clock. Well, uh, we're here in cold country about a month in Florida. We drove up over this last week, my wife Judy dragging her feet all the way up as we come up here. It's quite interesting. I uh, talked earlier with David Dolan down in Florida. He said, uh, eh, it's about 73. It's going to be cool today. I almost hit him, but I couldn't reach him. Anyway, we're here, and we're happy to be able to start ministering. We go over to Word of Life, the Bible Institute. I'll be teaching the book of Revelation in just a couple of days, starting on Tuesday of this next week. Well, let's get to our broadcast partners right now. And the first one is Ken Timmerman in the Washington, D.C. area. Ken, let me just start talking immediately with you about the current events we want to cover. And first of all, what about the Chuck Hagel confirmation uh, activities taking place there at the United States Senate? Is this guy for real? Well, I watched a good portion of his confirmation hearing on Thursday, Jimmy, and there were some stunning moments. Uh, here is There really were two Chuck Hagels, the Chuck Hagel uh, with a 10- to 12-year record of uh, appeasement of Iran and anti-Jewish and anti-Israeli statements, and then the Chuck Hagel of today, who has had a confirmation conversion just before his appearance uh, before the Armed Services Committee. Uh, he seemed to be really following the Groucho Marx school of um, politics. Uh, you know, Groucho Marx said once, uh, you don't like my values? Well, here's some other values. And that seemed to be what Chuck, uh, Chuck uh, Hagel was telling the senators. You don't like my positions? Well, I'm going to change them right here for you right now on the spot. Um, and I find that very troubling. Yes, it is very troubling. And the reason for those of you eavesdropping on this conversation that we talk about this issue is it is very significant as it relates to what uh, the world needs to do with Iran and, of course, how the United States looks at Israel. This man will be in a key position if he is confirmed by the United States Senate uh, there at the, the Department of Defense. Well, let's get to some of the other issues, Ken, that we want to discuss. The deadly suicide attack that hits the U.S. Embassy in Ankara, Turkey. Boy, this does not bode well for uh, that part of the world. Well, it's, it's another example, Jimmy, of uh, the perceived weakness of the United States. And Chuck Hagel fits into this picture, uh, as does John Kerry, the new Secretary of State. Um, we were attacked in Benghazi in Libya because of a perceived weakness of the United States, and I think this is just an, another example. Uh, luckily, the ambassador, our ambassador in Turkey, um, uh, was not quite as uh, 
idiotic as uh, his colleague in Cairo, uh, Frank Ricciardoni, who I have had occasion to, to, to talk with in the past, uh, did not order uh, the Marine Guards to take their ammo out of their weapons. But nevertheless, there, you know, one person was killed. There was a guard, a, a Turkish guard, who was killed by the suicide bomber. And um, now the United States is telling uh, American citizens, don't visit the embassy in Turkey because it could be dangerous. It's outrageous. Why has this attack been perpetrated upon the U.S. Embassy there? Any idea at all? Well, uh, I, I don't think we know yet what was behind it. The Turkish government has said it was a, it was a Turkish uh, individual, somebody who is known to be a, a left-wing, um, a member of a hard left-wing party, a Marxist party. But uh, I, I suppose we'll learn more about this in the coming days. Now, let me ask you another question about another attack of some type, possibly. I don't know. I've been reading reports this last week. There was an explosion at one of the nuclear facilities in Iran. There wasn't an explosion back and forth. Do you know anything more about that as well? Well, Jimmy, I've been looking into that uh, report uh, pretty extensively over the past couple of days. Uh, basically, uh, this is coming from a defector from Iranian intelligence, an individual I know who has uh, provided reliable information in the past uh, from sources currently working in Iranian intelligence. And he claimed that there was a massive explosion inside the Fordow nuclear enrichment plant outside of Khom. This is a buried facility deep in a mountain. And according to his information, the, there, there was a, a massive explosion deep in the facility that essentially buried alive some 200 workers. Uh, now, so far there's been no confirmation coming out of Iran. The regime has denied that any such attack took place. Uh, the United States government has not provided any corroboration. Some Israeli officials, uh, not on the record, uh, talking to reporters on background, have said, yes, we do have information that such an attack took place. Uh, I just don't know at this point, um, and I have been talking to all of my sources. Uh, one thing that disturbs me is that there's been no, um, nothing on the Iranian blogosphere, nothing on the Persian blogs to suggest that there's heightened security um, around home or to suggest that there's been a large-scale uh, evacuation or uh, you know, some kind of emergency rescue going on at the facility. So there's been no visible signs that something took place. But here's what did happen. Uh, just two days after this uh, alleged attack uh, is said to have occurred on the 21st of January, the Iranian regime informed the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna, that they were going to install a new generation of centrifuge in their larger uh, centrifuge plant at Natanz. Uh, now, that's significant because uh, those new centrifuges are five times faster than the ones that they had in Bordeaux. In other words, if they decide to break out uh, and to use their current stockpiles of 3 to 5% enriched uranium, they can reach weapons grade in a couple of weeks, and I mean three to four weeks with these new centrifuges. Wow, wow, that sounds very alarming. Well, this last week, of course, we had an Israeli attack on Syria. We're not sure exactly all the details behind that as well. Uh, but there are reports coming out of Israel that Bashar Assad, president of Syria, has transferred chemical weapons to Hezbollah, which is the fear of the Israeli Defense Force. Is there any validity to that report? Well, again, I'm, I'm a bit cautious over that report. Uh, the sourcing on it uh, says that it comes from Syrian opposition sources who say that this has been going on 
Uh, this took place a, a year ago, and it took place over a month, you know, several weeks that this transfer was going on. I just find it hard to believe that the uh, Israeli Defense Force Intelligence uh, would not have picked that up as it was happening and done something about it, because, as you just said, uh, this is one of the biggest fears that the Israelis have, is that Hezbollah will, will get some of Syria's uh, chemical weapons stockpiles and obviously would then be you know tempted to use them against Israel so I'm a bit skeptical of that report uh, however um, the sheer size of Assad's chemical weapons arsenal is itself troubling we know uh, you know he has probably the lo- probably the largest arsenal in the world of uh, weaponized uh, chemical agents and uh, they may not be under firm control of the regime nothing seems to on firm control of his regime these days. So I would say this is an ongoing concern. Hillary Clinton uh, made the news by making a statement to all the workers there, and of course the press covered it uh, from the Secretary of State's position, saying that she's giving warning to Syria and Iran. Is it going to get any better with uh, Kerry coming in? Well, I don't think it will, and I, I, I looked at this statement in some detail, and I must say, uh, Hillary Clinton, in her departure statement, this was her farewell address, if you wish, to the State Department, essentially admitted that she had failed in her four years as Secretary of State to get anything done. Uh, she had failed to really uh, uh, do anything about uh, the, the, the tragic massacres that are occurring in Syria. Uh, she's failed to put any pressure on the Iranian regime uh, to keep them from getting involved. She's failed with her reset with the Russians, uh, and she acknowledges in this address that the Russians are deeply involved in supporting Assad, and not just politically, but uh, in material and possibly military ways as well. Uh, you know, for a Secretary of State to, to make that kind of admission after four years in office uh, is, is pretty extraordinary. I hope that uh, uh, reporters will remember this should he ever, should uh, Hillary Clinton have the audacity to try to run for president in 2016. Well, finally, let me talk to you about uh, some Christian persecution going on in the Middle East. You've focused on that a lot in your reporting. Iran has sentenced an American pastor to eight years in prison. Uh, this is not getting any better in the Middle East. Well, it's not, and uh, uh, I'm afraid that we will have more um, uh, you know, more of a crackdown uh, of this sort. Uh, you know, this 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 latest pastor was he, he's an Iranian American. He's somebody who who fled Iran a number of years ago um, and uh, and um, became an American citizen and and now has an American wife uh, and uh, went back to Iran. This is not his first trip back to Iran. He was arrested in an earlier trip, uh, but this time Saeed Abedini was uh, not just arrested, but uh, uh, sentenced uh, to this long prison term for allegedly organizing house churches in Iran. The house church movement really disturbs the regime in Tehran. They are worried because they see uh, these house churches uh, are springing up inside the Revolutionary Guards, inside uh, the uh, parts of the population that they consider to be uh, core, absolutely key to their uh, keeping power in Iran. And so uh, they're trying their best to crush the movement and the uh, this sentence against uh, Pastor Saeed is uh, just part of that. We'll stay on top of this story, persecution of Christians, today throughout the entire Middle East, and we'll do that with Ken Timmerman. Ken, thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk again real soon. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, a Middle East news update. David Dolan standing by. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. 
In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung, I'm up here in snow country. Windsor, Connecticut is where we are. We're supposedly catching a little bit of snow tomorrow. Uh, We'll be at the church, of course, Grace Baptist Church. Tonight we begin at 6 o'clock and then uh, four sessions tomorrow. Uh, But they're going to be quite unique. In fact, we'll have an afternoon dinner on the grounds, and then we'll have our Q&A and our final session early on in the afternoon. I think there's a football game or something going on uh, on Sunday evening. So we'll be at the Grace Baptist Church, a bit of a schedule change. Come along and join us, and we'd love to have you a part of our study of Bible prophecy. Starts tonight at 6 o'clock, and we would love to see you. If you're in the listening area, you're listening to one of those Blount radio stations. He covers the entire New England area. Please join us for our study. Right now, we're going to have a Middle East news update with David Dolan. Over 30 years, this man has lived in the Middle East. He's lived in different countries in the Middle East, Lebanon and Israel, I know for sure, visited others. And he has a unique understanding of what's happening in that part of the world. That's why we call upon him to help us finally come up to a conclusion on what really is happening. When we hear the headlines, when we uh, talk about all of these things, we want to know the details. We go to David Dolan. And David, I want to just come right out of the box. The Israeli attack on Syria, was it a facility, a convoy? Was it both? What's going on? Well, Jimmy, the reports are are very scattered, and the Israelis are not uh, commenting at all on uh, this story. They're keeping completely silent. 
but we have had reports from um, diplomatic sources in London, from uh, Iraq, from Lebanon, newspapers and different outlets from Saudi Arabia. And basically, if you pick, put them all together, it looks like Israeli jets struck two um, targets, one being this um, chemical research facility on the outskirts of Damascus, a large facility just seven miles from President Assad's um, palace. And um, it is stated in some of the reports that um, many Iranian Revolutionary Guards were killed in the strike, that they were there protecting the very sensitive site from um, uh, you know, the armed rebellions that are trying to topple the Assad regime. Uh, now, the, uh, the rebellious, the rebellion groups, the anti-Assad uh, forces, say they attacked the facility, and uh, not Israel. Uh, but uh, it seems that it was Israeli jets involved, but they may have uh, joined in the attack on the ground. That's a possibility. Uh, the Syrians say just a few people were killed, but again, we're getting these other reports of many killed, including some Russian um, chemical experts that were reportedly working at the facility. Um, this comes as we're getting reports that um, um, amounts, uh, large amounts of mustard gas and other uh, chemical agents are being transferred to Hezbollah forces in Lebanon. This has always been Israel's fear. Uh, the United States has also warned against this, as Hillary Clinton did on Thursday, her last day on the job before retirement, that uh, the U.S. will not tolerate uh, these deadly weapons being transferred to this um, militia force that, of course, has already attacked Israel on many occasions, and so it would be uh, something Israel just cannot accept. So it seems like they hit another one of those convoys at the same time that they were striking this main um, facility. But, you know, Iran and Syria are both pledging that there will be a response. Iran's foreign minister saying a surprise awaits Tel Aviv. So this could could be uh, the thing that, that sets off a larger war. But the Syrians, of course, are preoccupied with their internal war. It's not something they would choose. Maybe more likely that they'll ask Hezbollah once again to fire some rockets, this time not striking just Haifa, but uh, striking all the way down to Tel Aviv. David, the chief of the Israeli Air Force made a statement that Syria has a huge weapons arsenal. Now, you were just talking about some transfer of uh, those weapons over to Hezbollah. How reliable is that report? And if it is very reliable, that is a pretty dangerous situation, isn't it? It is, Jimmy, and those reports are are very credible because um, we all remember the debate over Saddam's chemical weapons, did he have them or not, and where were they, and what were they. And the, the evidence then was fairly thin compared to what it is with Syria. Uh, Syria's been openly producing chemical uh, weapons at two facilities, uh, not in Damascus. That's where the research is carried out, but they're produced further north. They've been doing that since the 1960s uh, with Soviet assistance to begin with. Uh, mustard gas, sarin nerve gas, which is the, the worst of, of them, uh, VX nerve gas, and other things, uh, they really haven't hidden that fact. It's, uh, diplomats have seen some of the facilities, et cetera. The Israelis know exactly where they are and what they're comprised of. Um, they also have a very, very large and powerful rocket arsenal, um, uh, Scud missiles and um, uh, SS-21 Soviet-built multiple warhead uh, missiles and different things like that. So uh, the reports are that they may have the largest chemical 
arsenal on Earth, but certainly they're right up there with the top, and they have one of the largest armies on Earth. Now, of course, it's been preoccupied, as I say, but Syria is a potentially very uh, serious um, threat to Israel, and of course, especially if Iran fully backs them, which they will do, they don't want to see the Assad regime go, and um, an attack on Israel, well, it does unite uh, many Muslims, so we could well be uh, on the edge of something like that happening. I want to change the focus, but it has a similar content as it relates to the Syrian situation. And I want to focus on the prime minister putting together his coalition government, uh, President Shimon Perez asking him to do that. Uh, talk to me about the fact, is he going to be able to put it together and is it going to be a strong coalition government so that he can deal with these threats, i.e. Iran and Syria? Well, he's certainly going to try, but uh, it's going to need to involve uh, a, a number of parties, not just the one or two, but probably three or four additional parties than his Likud party, which earlier merged with um, Avigdor Lieberman's uh, Russian immigrant party. Um, they only got 31 seats, so that's one-fourth of the Knesset, one more than that. So they need, to have, they need to have at least three or four partners, and uh, all these different smaller parties come to the bargaining table with economic demands, with political demands. And the main problem is he has to have, it seems, uh, the new party, Yeshati, There's a Future, which is headed by Yair Lapid, a very popular Israeli talk show host for many years, very handsome guy, very likable, and... and uh, People know him like he's part of their family. Uh, he has to have his 19-seat uh, party to join his coalition. There's no question but that he does. But one of their platforms is that all uh, Orthodox Jews should do community service in Israel. Well, uh, Netanyahu needs at least two, and really he needs all three of the religious parties that got into the Knesset this time to be in his coalition. And they're totally against that um, uh, ideas. So uh, somehow one of the parties are going to have to give, but Lapid is saying, hey, I got 19 seats. These religious parties got six, seven, I think Shots got eight. Uh, we're the big one, and we're the one that, whose demand should be met. So it just really depends a lot on whether Lapid will, will bend a bit and how far Netanyahu can bend, uh, but he certainly needs a strong coalition with all this going on. And and I think everyone in the country realizes that, and that will help them to lessen their demands a bit. A uh, quick uh, couple of answers here. Bethlehem has banned any contact with Israel. Uh, is that uh, because of Hamas, or what's happening? Um, it's, it's part of this uh, reconciliation attempt that uh, the Palestinian Authority, which controls uh, the city, uh, is making with Hamas leaders, trying to make a, a unity pact and put together a unity government. So uh, presumably they're acting out, uh, um, they're, they're acting upon Hamas's demands more and more. And of course, uh, Hamas doesn't want to see any uh, um, connection to Israel at all uh, from the Palestinian government. They want, of course, a separate state, and they want Israel destroyed. So uh, it probably is part of that. Now, one 15-second answer, if you can. United Nations wants Israel to withdraw all their Jewish settlements from Judea and Samaria. Will that ever happen? They wanted that all along. They never wanted them there in the first place. And no, I personally don't think it will ever happen, because I don't think the Palestinians will ever get to the point where they can make a final peace with Israel. It would happen as part of that, but that's not likely at this stage. 
is the United Nations uh, uh, just not thinking right, telling that they're going to have to, uh, telling Israel they're going to have to take a half a million people out of their homes and their businesses and their families? Uh, that doesn't seem that they're thinking right, does it? No, I mean it's totally unrealistic, and and it's it's a political stand that they've always taken. It's officially the U.S. government stand as well, but on the ground to do that, it's just not going to happen. It's impossible. David Dolan with our Middle East news update. You can tell by the way he analyzes the news issues that we bring to his attention. He has great experience in that part of the world and understands what is happening. David, thank you so very much, my good friend. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, more on the discussion of the United Nations and the Jewish settlements. Winky Madad, who lives in Shiloh, one of those very famous biblical historical sites in Judea and Samaria, will be discussing the issue with us. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Winky Madad is joining us. Winky lives in Shiloh. It's one of the oldest Jewish cities in the world. 3,500 years ago, uh, Joshua led the people of Israel into conquering the promised land, and they set up their headquarters in Shiloh, in the center part of the state. It's somewhat of a controversial location right now because it's part of the Jewish settlements. And Winky, as I understand it, the United Nations is getting involved. Their Human Rights Commission has just released a report, and the report is basically condemnation against the Jewish settlements. First, your reaction to the United Nations. Do they have a right to come in and uh, say this type of a thing against the Jewish settlers on land that God has given to them? Well, they can try anything they want, uh, but their entire basis for their intervention is, of course, very much wrong. Uh, legally, uh, morally, and and basically what the essence of it is that they're saying that I and 350,000 other Jews in Judea and Samaria, uh, as well as another 250 or so thousand Jews in the newer Jewish neighborhoods north, east, and south of Jerusalem in the new 60, post-67 municipal borders, uh, have no rights, uh, and therefore we must go back into Israel, uh, among other things. Uh, and this is uh, all wrong. It would probably take me a week's seminar 
or several of your church gatherings uh, to explain it in depth, but they're still based on the fact, to put it into one sentence for you, Jimmy, that the 1947 November 29th partition recommendation is basically still in effect, and therefore, when it was decided or suggested to decide that an Arab state be set up in Palestine, they presume it exists. And everything from there is all downhill. Well, indeed, that partition plan from November the 29th, 1947, was negated, was it not, when the Palestinians rejected the plan? Jimmy, they not only rejected it, publicly, vocally, in the United Nations, in the press, but the very next day they went to war. And by the time the State of Israel was created on May 15, 48, we had already lost over 1,000 people, mainly civilians, in the intercommunal violence that had started by the Arabs. And uh, I would claim, and uh, friends of mine, including professors of international law, uh, point out that these people are simply um, um, manipulating wrongly uh, an interpretation of international law that doesn't hold water. Well, let's, let's say for a moment that it did hold water. Let's say the United Nations Human Rights Commission had the authority to come in there and condemn the Jewish settlers. Have we any condemnation of the terroristic attacks that have been perpetrated upon the Jewish people by the Palestinian terrorists? Has that been a subject or a focus of some of their reports? Their reports? No. In fact, they came out with a report two days ago, based, of course, on a Israeli NGO group called B'Tselem, which is very anti-Jewish presence beyond the Green Line, about methods used by police to disperse demonstrations in Judea and Samaria. And the local coordinator uh, came out and uh, condemned the situation. I immediately wrote him, as you know me, Jimmy, and maybe some of the people listening, I'm a proactive type of a guy, and I don't let anything go by my screen without doing something with it. And I said, could you please tell me the last time uh, you condemned an Arab attack, and in fact, just yesterday, or the, actually the day before, a 17-year-old was stabbed at the Tapuch Junction. I haven't heard anything either from the local representative, or that august body that sits on the banks of the Hudson River called the United Nations, or the East River, to be exact. <laughs> the East River, yeah. What about uh, Israel's reaction? From the government perspective I'm talking about, I understand your personal reaction, but what about the Israeli government? How are they responding? Well, their response between you and me and everybody listening, Jimmy, was very uh, weak. It just said, this is not helpful. It's really uh, unfortunate, I think, that um, Israel is not a little bit more assertive uh, in the situation. And um, I feel that our government is not doing the best it could be in some of these uh, statements that they make. What would you suggest should have been the reaction, and how can the Israeli government deal with this situation coming from the supposed august body of the United Nations? Well, two things. First, Mr. Netanyahu himself spoke very well in uh, that joint session of Congress 
when he said that no one can tell us that we don't have 33,000 years of heritage and presence in this land and, uh, and, and, and we are not in settlements, that could be repeated. He could point out that among the members of that United Nations Human Rights Council that authored the report, uh, we have such human rights uh, stars and celebrities as uh, Libya, Pakistan, the Ivory Coast, um, Ethiopia, Qatar, and uh, Venezuela. I'm sure, Jimmy, that you and uh, our listeners are quite well aware of the remarkable human rights record of those countries. Uh, not only that, Jimmy, but the reports, as the New York Times editorial had to admit today, are overwhelmingly focused on Israel and ignore the rest of the world, as if, and you'll pardon me for saying this, the Jews are the problem, no one else. Why do you think that is? What's driving the United Nations uh, to just simply focus right there, not even on the entire state of Israel, but in particular on the area of the Jewish settlements, Judea and Samaria? Well, Jimmy, now I have to get a little bit biblical, if you will allow me to. The essence of Jewish peoplehood is not only a theology and a belief in God and a ritual for the holidays, for keeping kosher, for keeping the Sabbath, etc. It's a recognition that God had made a covenant with the Jewish people, and in addition to all that, said that could only be fulfilled the best way in the land of Israel. In making us a little bit different than many, if not almost all, other national groupings, we combine not only a culture and a language with a geographical heritage, but also a theological, or if you want to call it, a divine covenantal expression that the Bible is proof of, that archaeology is proof of, that history is proof of, and the very fact that we keep on coming back to the land of Israel. That's the most illogical thing to do, but we keep on doing it to prove our faith in God, the faith in our history, and the faith in where our future is going. And I don't think that most of the world in the last couple of decades going very liberal, going very postmodern, going very, uh, I don't want to say immoral, but anti or amoral in many issues, they just don't want to accept that, and that's a testimony and a witnessing that the Jewish people are doing, which doesn't fit well with too many people. Well, in addition to what you've just said, and boy, that was great what you just revealed to us from God's Word and the authority that you have to be in the land, whoever may condemn that, they have no basis upon which to do it. But in addition to what you said, God's prophetic word also says it's an absolute. You're going to be there, and ultimately the world, would you not agree, is going to have to catch up with what the Bible says in order for there to be some type of coexistence and peace on this earth? Well, they'll have to because given our history in the last uh, 150 years, Jimmy, unfortunately we had uh, gone through troubles uh, and pain and suffering. We tried to get help from the world. It didn't come. Then they felt sorry for us. And then again we were attacked by Arab terror. 
and they felt sorry for us. And it's always trying to catch up to us. We seem to be a little bit too far ahead. I hope the people that are friends with us, Christian Zionists, other Zionists from other religions and cultures and peoples realize that it's best to be with us at all times at the right time. Winky, thank you so very much, my good friend. I'm sure this is not going to go away, so I'm sure we're going to have additional conversations in the future. But thank you so much for chatting with us this time. Okay, Jimmy, good night, uh, goodbye uh, to you and our listeners. Winky Madad, he is a key component of our broadcast partners as we try to understand really what's happening and the discussion of the United Nations wanting all the settlers in the Jewish area of Judea and Samaria there in Israel to be evacuated. And, uh, in fact, uh, the United Nations Human Rights Commission getting ready possibly uh, to take uh, the Israeli Jewish settlers to the international courts. Uh, quite an interesting conversation with Winky Madad. Another Interesting conversation is always on the table when I talk with Itamar Marcus, who heads up the Palestinian Media Watch. Itamar has come from Israel to the United States, in fact, uh, just arriving uh, very recently. You know, we are playing this on Saturday. Itamar is not available on Shabbat, so that's why we recorded it. Let me start with a report that you sent out. There has been produced a film that is depicting Zionism as a plot by the European Union to rid the European Union of any Jews. Uh, I have talked with Rob Congdon, our broadcast partner who covers the European Union. He said that extremism is the highest it's ever been since World War II. Is that a part of this whole scenario that's unfolding? Well, the the specific uh, video that we're referring to uh, that was on official Palestinian television, uh, it's not talking about what's happening today as much as what happened uh, at the creation of the State of Israel. They argue that throughout the Middle Ages, Europeans were doing the Jews a service by taking them in, and that the Jews paid them back. Uh, with corruption, monopolies, terrible character traits of the Jews, which forced, essentially out of self-defense, England, France, Germany, Austria, Holland, Spain, Italy, and it goes on, all of them had to expel the Jews uh, in self-defense. In other words, what the Jews suffered anti-Semitism and persecution for, for hundreds and hundreds of years in Europe. Uh, they were expelled from many countries just because of uh, anti-Semitic reasons, uh, prejudice reasons. And here, the Palestinian Authority is teaching their people, yeah, this proves to you, this proves to you how terrible the Jews are. Look, all these countries of Europe kept expelling them. And then what they do is they, they build this, this hateful image of this evil uh, Jew into the excuse for the creation of the State of Israel. And what they say is the Europeans, who suffered so much from the Jews, decided to uh, support the Balfour Declaration, in order to get rid of their Jews, in other words, the creation of Israel was for the Europeans a way to get rid of their Jewish problem, as opposed to something uh, of value, the return of the Jewish people to the land which was taken from them. Uh, it literally turns all of history on its head, uh, and this is the way Palestinians educate their people. Israel has no right to exist because we've had no history, and the Europeans dumped us here in order to get, uh, in order to get rid of uh, their Jewish problem. I want to look at other stories that you've reported on Palestinian Media Watch, and that address for uh, Itamar's website is 
palwatch.org, P-A-L-W-A-T-C-H dot O-R-G. You've uh, talked about, and maybe we briefly can look at some of these issues, the Israeli army shaping explosives in uh, the form of a toy so they could target Palestinian children. How off the wall is that comment? Well, it's, it's off the wall, but it's consistent with Palestinian messages to their people. They're constantly saying that Israel is trying to kill them. Uh, they, they want their people to feel justified killing Israelis. The way to do that is say Israel is killing you. Israel makes, makes weapons and munitions in the shape of toys that children will find them in the street, uh, find them in fields, and then will be killed just touching them. Again, this is an outrageous libel, but it's consistent with the endless, endless libel that the Palestinian Authority, and we're talking about the mainstream Mahmoud Abbas's people. These are the lies that they tell to their people so that people will hate Israelis and be willing to fight and kill Israelis. And at the same time, this same supposedly moderate group of the Palestinian people, Fatah, of course, Mahmoud Abbas, who is the president of the Palestinian Authority, the leader of Fatah, on their Facebook have uh, honored the first female Palestinian terrorist. Uh, they're braining up these heroes who have been ones who have killed Jewish people. Exactly. It's very consistent with this message of uh, like the, the previous one about uh, promoting hatred by, by demonizing Israelis. Uh, because Israel is said to be you know, making toys that look like, you know, making weapons that look like toys and, and, and killing Palestinian children, therefore... Anyone, like Wafa Idris, this female suicide bomber who, who blows herself up and kills Israelis, becomes a Palestinian hero. She is fighting this evil Jewish force in the world. That's the message that the Palestinians give their people. Um, and by having this on the Facebook page, they are targeting the youth, They're targeting the next generation of Palestinians. They're telling them, these are your heroes. These are the people you should be emulating. These people you should be seeing as role models. People like Wafa Idris, who was a suicide bomber who killed Israelis. In fact, her mother was interviewed in this on the Facebook page, and I'm going to quote what her mother said. It was a deed that uh, she said, I was, she, she is proud of her daughter and hopes that more girls will follow in her footsteps. The purpose of this is to promote suicide bombing. Wow. Wow. That's what the Palestinian media is saying, folks, and you need to understand what they're really saying. That's the service of palwatch.org, of the Palestinian Media Watch, headed up by Itamar Marcus. Well, Itamar, as we conclude our conversation, talk to me about the report you gave that Jews have no right to the Western Wall. Now, the Palestinians have been saying they have no right to the Temple Mount itself, but now they move down to the Western Wall where the Jews pray today, and they're also saying only Muslims have used the Western Wall as a place of worship down through history. How ironic that is, because it's totally incorrect. Absolutely. All of their libels and hatred and denying of history is, is baseless. And, uh, but for them, it's important. They tell their people Israel is foreigners, Israel has no right to exist. And then when they say something like, the Jews were never at the Western Wall, they never used it as a place of prayer. What they're telling their people is that Israel are usurpers. Israeli people are usurpers, and they have a right to push us out of our land. And again, all of this hatred that we're seeing and we're documenting by the PA, and all of this denial of Israel's history, it's all for the same purpose, ultimately to create a population who will never, ever make peace with Israel 
And after all the years of following the Palestinian Authority, I am convinced that the Palestinian Authority leadership is not interested in peace with Israel. Just the opposite. They are doing everything in their power to make sure that there will never be peace with Israel. And if they sign a peace treaty with Israel, they are literally creating a generation who will uh, revoke that peace treaty a couple of years down the line and then continue the war against Israel. Edomar, thank you for joining us, even here in America. We appreciate you taking a moment to be with us. We'll talk again real soon. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You know, when Edomar Marcus gives us information, we can take it to the bank because his team monitoring the Palestinian media are precise in how they translate what is really being said, and it helps us to understand really what's going on in that part of the world. Again, our thanks to Itamar Marcus. Dr. Rob Congdon is very precise in his reporting of what is happening in the European Union as well, and we bring Dr. Congdon to these microphones right now for the purpose of looking at some of the headlines coming out of that continent and how they play into an end-time scenario that is laid out in God's Word. Rob, thanks for being with us. Let me ask you, first of all, about a statement made by the NATO chief, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. He made a statement that the European Union must spend more on their military. I think that has ramifications as it relates to the European Union thinking and planning on possibly developing a military of their own. But talk to me about this statement coming from the NATO chief. Well, yes, uh, the NATO chief Rasmussen has really urged the EU to start uh, taking a stronger position in the EU. Financially, the EU has had years and years where they've had to contribute actually very small percent, uh, less than 30 percent of the costs of NATO. And if you think about it, NATO's prime function is to protect Europe. So they're recognizing that if if the European countries don't either contribute more, uh, the U.S., they're afraid, would take more and more power, and they'd be dependent on the U.S. military. And, and they're starting to recognize in Europe that that is not as secure a trust as they had in the past. So what's happening is one of two things is going to happen. Either NATO and the European countries in it will have to start contributing more to the costs and the manpower, etc., or they will have to start their own separate military. And the Mali situation has really brought it almost to a head because they're recognizing that France, independently of the EU, and if you will, in some sense, independent of NATO, has moved ahead without them. So they recognize that that's where it's got to go. Well, I want to talk about the Mali situation in just a moment. And I see you're looking at a trend, the possibility of a European Union military might itself. Can you give us any update? I know in the past we have talked about the efforts being put in place to try to do that. Is, is there any progress there? Well, there continue to be individuals given the right uh, platform. They'll speak out and say that that's where it has to move to. Even these discussions have said that's where it has to move to. The EU recognizes that if it cannot have its own military power, 
it can't have that total sovereignty, which is a goal of the EU, over the 27 countries. If individual countries have problems and they go and they react individually or independently of the EU, that weakens the EU. So several spokesmen have pointed out that unless the EU starts developing its own military, it's going to lose some of its power as a governing body in Europe and, most importantly, lose some of its power toward becoming the true empire that they really desire. Oh, I love that phrase, true empire that they uh, really desire. That's that revived Roman Empire. Well, let's uh, look at Mali just for a moment. France has a connection there. Their troops are there. The president just went in, the president of France, that is. Uh, talk to me about uh, European Union ministers who are raising alarm about Mali executions. Is France involved in that, or what's going on? Well, so far, France has said they haven't been involved in it, and I think that's probably true. Uh, Europeans as a whole, even when they're fighting battles, have a different set of standards, let's say, than some of the North African nation peoples would. What is happening is what happens always with war. There are atrocities on both sides. There are things on both sides where civilians get injured or get involved because war no longer is out on a separate battlefield or, or plane. What is concerning the EU people are reports that now once that France has cleared an area of the Islamic uh, revolutionists in Mali, that those people remaining behind are starting to take uh, retaliation on some of the collaborators who helped the Islamists. And so in that retaliation, uh, obviously from the European viewpoint, they're taking steps that are not humanitarian, and therefore to the European this is an offense, and I think to us too, certainly. But they are reacting, and they are speaking out against it as some of the reports are just starting to come in. So it is a concern. The EU has always been strong on human rights. And um, so it's a natural reaction from them. It will be watched. I'm sure France itself will do everything in its power to minimize any such incidents. Rob, I read a report this week that the European Union are making a statement. Extremism is at its highest level since World War II. What's that report about? Well, it's it's what we have started noting several, uh, actually months ago, that anti-Semitism along with other uh, anti-movements are growing in Europe. Uh, the extremist groups, kind of the old spectrum of views, the people way on the far left and people way on the far right are starting to uh, get attention. And in many cases, some of the racist uh, parties on the right, uh, the nationalistic groups are starting to get a stronghold in the European Parliament, in local elections. That's where they start. They work at the local level, and they're hoping to move up. So they're concerned because it's starting to create, a, obviously, a divisive aspect throughout Europe and increasing hatred. And so what's happening is individual incidents against Jewish people, against minorities, are growing in Europe. And this is a concern to the EU because the EU promises peace, prosperity, and everybody being protected. And so they are reacting. What I would always stress is that the parliament is a discussion platform more than a governing body. And uh, if these parties start coming in too strongly into the parliament, trying to wheel their very anti-Semitic or other extreme views, um, the commission, which is the real governing body of the EU in reality, and the council, another 
strong body. Uh, they'll just have to grab more power, and I think the parliament will reduce, and perhaps we'll see eventually the parliament done away with. So it is a concern both from, the again, the human rights standpoint, but the EU's overall goals, this growing hatred and its infiltration into the parliament could hurt them in those goals that they're trying to achieve. Now, you just mentioned anti-Semitism, and you and I have both talked about the increasing population of the Islamic world and peoples there in Europe and the area of the European Union. Does this factor in at all? Uh, Certainly it does. And, in fact, I've been reading that in some cases they believe that there are anti-Semitic incidents. Now, that can largely be one person to another, have occurred to the point where they're getting reports of one a day now in the European Union, which is quite a high level. Many of those cases involve the conflict between uh, uh, Muslims, uh, the growing, growing number, especially in France and England, and their effect on the Jewish population. What we observed, for instance, in Britain is that uh, 20 years ago you would go to certain areas that were primarily Jewish in terms of the housing, the suburbanites. Uh, what has happened is the Jewish people in Britain have started scattering throughout the suburbs and the island, rather than being in a specific area. So you can't say, oh, that was the Jewish neighborhood, this is the Italian neighborhood. Instead, it's been a blending so that uh, they're less visible to the Muslim population. Seems like a stage setting for a prophetic scenario found in God's Word. Absolutely. Uh, It's, I guess, sad to say that's what we expect reading the Scriptures, and uh, it seems to be progressing that way. Rob, thank you so very much for giving us this insight. We appreciate it, and we'll talk again down the line. Okay, look forward to it. Lord bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back right here on Prophecy Today, a very special interview with Rabbi Yoel Karen about visiting the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung here. We've got about 30 minutes left on Prophecy Today, and I don't want you to go away. There's a newscast upcoming right after that. I have a very special guest that we'll be talking to, and then I will take a look at the book. We'll bring all of the details from our broadcast partners together, help you understand the prophetic scenario found in God's Word and how close we are to the return of Jesus Christ. We'll be back in five minutes right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm here in Windsor, Connecticut. We're going to be at the Grace Baptist Church. Starts at 6 o'clock this evening. We'll have two sessions. And then tomorrow, we're going to have quite an interesting schedule. A couple of sessions in the morning, take a break for lunch, and then we'll come back early afternoon to have a Prophecy Q&A, and I'll conclude with my final teaching from the prophetic Word of God. Of course, we are accommodating everybody who would like to watch the Super Bowl on Sunday night. Not sure I'm going to do that or not, but indeed, this is a way that we can help those who are interested in studying the Word of God, but also being able to watch their favorite football contest. Well, it's great to have you along in this last half hour. I'll take a look at the book at the bottom of the hour. In just a moment, I'll be talking with Rabbi Yoel Karen. These recent Israeli elections may have an effect on whether the Jewish people can go up and walk on the Temple Mount. 
You know, the Palestinian people control the Temple Mount. They say who can come up on the Temple Mount, what they can do up there, what time they can go up, how long they can stay. Well, the Israeli government has a couple of brand new members of the Knesset who may help make a difference in this whole situation. Rabbi Karen will talk about that with us in just a moment. Want to go to the poll question? Let me give you the poll question. It's on our website, prophecytoday.com. It's on the home page on the left-hand column. Scroll down and you'll find it. Here it is. With the Israeli strike on Syria's research center and a convoy carrying weapons and missiles, the Syrians have threatened to retaliate against Israel. This type of activity fits the prophetic scenario found in Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 to 43, where Syria is referred to as the king of the north. With these current events between Israel and Syria taking place, could it be setting the stage for this prophecy in Daniel to be fulfilled? Please go to my website, prophecytoday.com, and answer that poll question for us. By the way, when you're there... Look on the right-hand column, you'll see the word PASS, P-A-S-S. We're trying to get the next generation to understand Bible prophecy. And the method by which we're going to do this is we're going to recruit an army, a prophetic army of senior saints. If you're listening and you are a senior saint, however that is qualified in your understanding, we would love to have you come and join with us. We're going to teach you Bible prophecy, teach you how to really study all of the prophetic truth of God's Word, how then to teach it, and we will then encourage you to go forth to teach your children, teach your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, put a Bible study together for the neighbors that you have in your neighborhood, or maybe teach a Sunday school class, or even get more advanced than that. Travel around and teach Bible prophecy. We want to make sure the next generation understands the prophetic word of God. Should the Lord tarry the rapture not take place while we're still alive, I want the prophetic army of senior saints to be able to teach the next generation what God's word says about the end times. Be sure to go to my website. It's on the right-hand side of our homepage, Pass. Double-click on that. And by the way, the first course in our study, a biblical course, is going to be given to you absolutely free. Find out about it by going to our website. That's prophecytoday.com. Now we bring back to these microphones a broadcast partner par excellence who always is available to help us to understand activities taking place focused on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and in addition to that, the preparations to build the next temple on that Temple Mount. We're talking about Rabbi Yoel Karen. Rabbi Karen is a man that is a good friend, uh, but is very knowledgeable of the subjects to which we want to address, and that's so that's so great for us to be able to have somebody, a broadcast partner like that, available for us there in Jerusalem. Yoel, let me talk to you about uh, Moshe Phelan. Last time we had a conversation, you were very excited about the fact that this man, who has been running, actually, for the Knesset for the last oh, two or three elections, he finally made the list in the Likud party. He is going to be a member of the Knesset. That's the legislative body for the state of Israel. And with that comes the uh, diplomatic community so that he can go up onto the Temple Mount and not be arrested as he has in the past. Now, I understand just in the last couple of days, he went up again onto the Temple Mount. Uh, This is pretty significant, is it not? 
Yeah, it it is. It's 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 a very nice thing to have. You know, we also had it with uh, with Doctor Professor Michael Benari when he was in the Knesset. He would go up, and he would bow and certain things like that. Things that anyone else would be arrested for, he could do. But it's, I think it's even more significant with Moshe Feiglin because you know, he has he has really been at the forefront of of this this promise that he's always made. If I'm ever if 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 the Lord ever helps me to become Prime Minister of Israel, the first thing I will do is walk up onto the Temple Mount and bow down and give thanks. So I'm sure he plans on you know he's he's, he's going to be doing the same thing here now that he's elected to the Knesset, and and the Arabs really really take note of everything he says because they know they know that he means it. And they see him getting closer and closer and rising up in the government. Well, now, you said that, I think in the past you told me, at least once a month, he had a special day of the month that he would go up onto the Temple Mount. In light of that, he had a purpose prior to being elected to the Knesset for going up on the Temple Mount. And let me just ask you, point blank, why should Jewish people, I know you take groups up onto the Temple Mount, and Rabbi Chaim Richman does the same thing. He's with the Temple Institute. Why are you men doing this, and why should Jewish people go up onto the Temple Mount? Because we have a commandment in the Bible, in the Torah, that tells us, God tells us, and you shall fear my sanctuary. And all of the, all, all of the Jewish law associated with that commandment can only be performed in one place, and that is on the Temple Mount. You don't fear God's sanctuary and show awe and respect for it by not going there. It just doesn't work that way. Every law in Jewish law relating to this commandment of you shall fear my sanctuary is related to your behavior and what you're doing on the Temple Mount. And so anyone who doesn't go on the Temple Mount, refuses to go there, cannot fulfill that commandment. That's why we go up. Well, then, uh, when you take a group up, I know you and others are involved in taking groups up onto the Temple Mount. You've studied the Temple Mount, and you know the areas up there. Uh, You take them up. What do you do? Uh, Just kind of give us a brief description of what you do. How do you train people, or Jewish people in particular, when you take them up onto the Temple Mount? Well, usually, when I take groups, usually my my tour, I guess, if you will call it, is, is more of a, um, more of an arche- more archaeology focused. I explain to people what they're seeing while they're there, the different, the different remnants that you see from different periods in history, because I try to, at every turn, dispel all sorts of mythology and things that grow up about someone sees something and they'll declare it to be a piece of the temple when it was really built in the early Arabic period or something like that. And so I try to educate the people in things like that, and I also want to make sure they understand where the permitted boundaries are and aren't. Because even among the people who go up quite often, what they do is they figure it's safest just to stick to the very outer periphery, and that way you know you can't go wrong. I want people to know where the borders are. By keeping people around the outside border, that still doesn't educate them. That doesn't teach them where the different courts in the temple were. And they still don't know where they can and can't go. So I try to get them and bring them up a little bit closer, show them various landmarks that they can look for to see where, about where the different areas are, what's forbidden to them, where they can't go, where they can go. So it's all about, with me, it's all about education. Well, now, you're saying the places that they cannot go. That would be, for example, the Holy of Holies. Would that be the only restricted area? Or are there other restricted areas for Orthodox Jews there on the Temple Mount? 
Orthodox Jews, according to most opinions, and there are there are several opinions, very weighty opinions in, in Jewish history among the sages that say that listen, you know, there's there's an issue that whenever the the the, the, the tabernacle would be erected and moved or destroyed while it was up, the sanctity was there. Once it was taken down or destroyed by one of our enemies or whatever, the sanctity was no longer there. Just like uh, Shiloh. Once, once the Philistines destroyed that, uh, that tabernacle, that was it. The area is no longer sanctified anymore. But then they tell us, I say just tell us that, and, and the Bible itself tells us, God says, when you come to the place that the Lord will choose to put his name forever. Okay, so once we set up the altar in Jerusalem, that's it. That was the place forever. We know we can't build a temple anywhere else, but the question is, when the temple's not there, is there sanctity? Most opinions say yes, there's still sanctity there. Not like if the temple was standing, but that you still need to respect those boundaries and behave as if the temple was standing in front of you. That's one of the things about having fear for God's sanctuary. Even though it's destroyed and it's not there, you still need to fear it and have awe and reverence for it. So the place where Jews are not allowed to go is anywhere inside what's called the Azara. It was the sanctified area. In the tabernacle, it was sort of that curtain that went up all the way around the, uh, the altar and, the, and uh, the, actual, um, the actual tabernacle and everything. There was, a, there was sort of a, a curtain, a border that was put around it. That's called the Azara. It just means the area, the sanctified area. That is where we're not allowed to go when we are unclean by contact with the dead. Let me ask, do you have plans to do additional tours up onto the Temple Mount, and do you believe the others who are involved in this same type of education program for Orthodox Jews and for Christians as well, uh, do you think that's going to continue, only intensify in the days ahead? I try to go just about every week, just about every week. And if, you know, Lord willing, I'll, I'll be there next week, and about every Thursday I go up, and anybody is welcome to come. Wow. Well, next time I'm in Israel, I'd love to go up with you and learn from you what you know about that very, very sacred area. I guess the reason it's so sacred to me, as I've listened and sat at the feet of uh, people like Yehuda Glick, who was the executive director for the Temple Institute, men like Rabbi Chaim Richman, who was a member of that uh, operation there with the Temple Institute and is a major player in preparing to build the next temple. They tell me that is the original site of the Garden of Eden. Would you go along with that thought? Absolutely, absolutely. This is this is the the stone that is that is on inside the Dome of the Rock, where the Holy of Holies is. Our sages tell us that this was the place where all of the universe sprang forth, and even even physics. Not that we're we're listening to everything scientists tell us, but even the physics will tell you that the entire universe sprang forth from what was called a singularity, one single point. And it's exactly what our sages tell us also, that the entire universe sprang forth from that spot out into, into the full-blown universe that we know today. All of creation came from that spot. When God spoke and said, let it be, it was. Wow. Now that then would lead to the next question uh, that I have to ask. Is that why the Muslim world focuses on the Temple Mount as well. Do they believe that that was the original site of the Garden of Eden? All I've heard from them is, you know, in the past, the reason that they took it over and that they held any significance to it whatsoever was because they said this was the site of what they call Mizjad Suleiman, the Mosque of Solomon. They mean the Temple of Solomon, but they call it a mosque. 
They held that this was the site of the temple. And, and as I've said before, in their pamphlets in 1929, they proudly proclaimed, surely this is the place where David erected his altar and where Solomon built his temple. Only, and it was never very important. I mean, you can, I'm sure you've seen the photos from the, from the 20s and everything with, with it all overgrown with weeds and grass, and nobody they didn't care that much about it. Only when the Jews came back did it become important to them. I think that's their, their main focus on it. That's why they're focused on it. That's why they make so much noise about it. It's just because we are there, and they feel that we might be coming soon to take it back. And, of course, the reason for Solomon's temple being built there on Mount Moriah, which it says in the Chronicles. On Mount Moriah is the location where Solomon built that temple. It's the location where uh, Abraham offered Isaac. It's the location where David, King David, purchased from Ornan the Jebusite a, a threshing floor to put the temple up. It's the place where the next temple is going to be. Thus, that's the reason. All of these activities took place because it was the original site of the Garden of Eden. That makes it the most sacred piece of real estate in all of creation, does it not? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a place where God deals with man. Wow. Where God deals with man. What a, what a great thought. Rabbi Yoel Karen, he's available when we contact him, and we're so grateful he is because he gives us insight that we need to have as we look at all the activities unfolding in the Middle East, in Israel, and in particular in Jerusalem on that Temple Mount. Rabbi, thank you so very much. We'll talk again real soon, I'm sure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi Karen. Always a very interesting conversation with the rabbi. Well, we're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. 
If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, a chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end times prophecy book that God has preserved in his scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we have focused on Syria, the civil war going on there, Israel's attack with their F-16 on two strategic targets in Syria, the chemical weapons arsenal that Syria has, probably the largest in the world, and the potential for war involving Syria in the very near future. What has happened in Syria this week and in the last several weeks brings to our mind several prophetic passages that are very close to fulfillment. For example, Isaiah chapter 17. There is a prophecy in Isaiah 17 of the destruction of the city of Damascus, and it says that will happen in the last days. It uses the phrase, in that day, a number of times in the passage. Bashar Assad even made the statement, destroy Damascus and I still will win the war. Well, this destruction of Damascus takes place in the first of the tribulation period. That comes from our study of Daniel chapter 11, the passage that deals with how all of this comes together. Daniel 11 verse 40 talks about in the last days, and then it describes what will happen in the last days. Daniel chapter 11 verse 40 mentions the king of the north. Now, early on in the book of Daniel chapter 11 verses 5 to 21, it defines who the king of the north is, and geographically, the king of the north would be modern-day Syria. There's going to be a coalition of nations that will attack Israel in the last days. There are three passages that give us the details, the nations involved in this alignment of nations against the Jewish state. Book of Psalms, chapter 83, talks about this alignment of nations, and it mentions Lebanon and Saudi Arabia, which are not mentioned in the other passages. When we come to Ezekiel, chapter 38, we see that Russia will play a key part. Turkey is going to be involved. Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan will be involved, and they're referred to as Ethiopia in chapter 38 of Ezekiel, verse 5. Put or Libya, there'll be another player in this battle. And then, of course, you've got Persia right there at the beginning of verse 5. And until 1936, three nations today were then known as Persia. Today, they're known as Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. Now, when you come to Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 to 43, we see the king of the north, and I just mentioned that the king of the north, early on in chapter 11, is defining the nation of Syria. The king of the south in that passage is referring to Egypt. So these nations are going to align themselves against the Jewish state of Israel. This battle is going to take place after the rapture of the church in the first six months of the tribulation period. 
Israel's going to believe that the Messiah has come, and in fact, they're going to start dwelling safely in their mind as they believe the Messiah is in place and he has brought peace like the Bible had promised he would. Now, we come to that conclusion by looking at Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 8 and 11. Verse 8 talks about they will be dwelling safely in the land, all of these Jewish people who have come from every major part of the world back into the land. Verse 11 of chapter 38 of Ezekiel talks about they will live in unwalled villages. I want to remind you, when Ezekiel wrote the book back 2,500 years ago, he didn't know anything about F-16s, about the Mark the Tank, the most sophisticated tank in the world, about the Apache attack helicopter. He knew that a Jewish city, the only way they could protect themselves was to have a wall around their city. That was their main defense. Well, the Bible tells us that when they live in unwalled cities, we're talking about the Jewish people, and again, at the time Ezekiel wrote it, that wall was their defense, so they'll lay down their defenses, the F-16s, the Markva tanks, the Apache attack helicopters. The Israelis will lay down their weaponry that would be used to defend themselves or go after their enemies, and thus they are living in unwalled villages. Now that's going to happen when the Antichrist appears and confirms a peace treaty. There's going to be peace between the Jewish state of Israel and all of her neighbors. At least a pseudo-peace will be put in place. The Jews believe because they are following the dictates of Satan. They have rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Thus they will be blinded and believe what the Antichrist or the devil tells them about the situation. So they believe they're living in that time of peace described in many locations throughout the entire word of God. It's when at that time that the Jews are living in peace, though it be a pseudo peace, this alignment of nations will come to attack the Jewish state of Israel. And the Bible tells us, Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, the king of the north, that would be Syria, will make the first move in this alignment of nations. It is at this time that Isaiah 17 will be fulfilled. Damascus will be destroyed. When you look at Isaiah chapter 17, it uses the phrase, in that day, seven times. And in that day is referring to the day of the Lord, and that's when it leads up to the return of Jesus Christ. You see, in that day could specifically talk about the day that Jesus Christ steps back on the earth there at the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, or it's also talking about a period of time in the last days, Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, that would be describing the seven-year period of time leading up to the return of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when you stop to think about it, the stage has been set, in particular this last week. When you're talking about F-16s attacking, going after a research center there just outside of Damascus, when you're talking about taking out a convoy carrying weapons and munitions and possibly weapons of mass destruction over into Hezbollah, southern Lebanon, you can see all the players are getting involved in this scenario that's unfolding in the Middle East. When you have Bashar Assad saying, go ahead and destroy the city of Damascus, I'm going to win anyway. When he talks about Damascus, dear friends, he's talking about that city who will be destroyed. It's one of the five major cities in Bible prophecy. 
And I cannot remember in my lifetime, and as I've searched the scriptures and looked at history, I don't remember any other time that it's been just like this when Damascus could be destroyed and it would be in the last days. We're looking at a prophetic scenario that's unfolding from God's word in reality on the ground as political activities unfold in the Middle East. The stage is set. All the actors are quickly moving into place, and the rapture itself is about to happen. That's when Jesus shouts, the archangel shouts, the trumpet of God sounds, and we're all caught up to meet him in the air. Now, that is to precede all the prophecies that we've talked about from Isaiah 17 and the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verses 40 to 43. And in fact, that rapture could happen at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say except let's keep looking up until. Join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.